Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday morning. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Well, good morning to you. You, you sound a little too chipper for uh, this close to Pesach. This is a very uh, a very uh, tense and uh, and hustle bustle type of time in our community. Are you getting that feeling that people are preparing and busily getting ready for Monday night's big Pesach Seder? I think it's much more than a feeling. You, see, uh, you know, I saw a thing where it said uh, the rabbi said, and uh, we were we were once slaves. In Egypt, and the women say we were one slave. <laughs> it is one time carry the burden, and I feel guilty complaining when I'm not even around for Pesach. But it is uh, one tough holiday, it seems, for everybody, no matter what they're doing. I guess uh, to different degrees. Well, Jacob Birnbaum has passed away, who helped launch the uh, student struggle for Soviet Jury. Died Wednesday at the age of 87. I would assume, Malcolm, that this is somebody who you spent a lot of time with over the years. I'm glad that we have the opportunity here to say something about him because there's a whole generation that grew up, that is growing up, that doesn't know his name, and uh, especially a theme for, um, for Mitzrayim and the, for Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the, the, um, if anybody or any movement really related to the Chag of Pesach, it was the Soviet Jewry movement whose theme was Shalachatami, that my people go. Abduni, so that should be able to to serve me. That the um, whole theme on the underlying principles and essence of Pesach was reflected in a way in the Soviet Jewry movement. That he was the true father of the movement. I had the privilege yesterday to speak at his uh, levaya, and an even greater privilege that on Tuesday I was able to visit him in the hospital and to talk to him. And the thing he took. Pride in what he told me in his really gasping um, uh, speech and uh, very difficult and belabored speech was to talk to me about the young people who come to his shul, the shul where he davens, um, Mount Sinai Jewish Center in Washington Heights. And he said hundreds come, and they recalled events of 30 years ago when we were young and uh, when I was very young and I first came to him and uh, when the Soviet Jewry movement was uh, borning and uh, came from Philadelphia to visit him to get materials. and uh, He was the inspiration. He carried the burden. He took a lot of uh, flack uh, over the years for, for what he did. And, and today, he's not, he's not remembered in the way that he should be. And, and you know, it's appropriate that it's Achrei Mos this week. They used to say Achrei Mos Kedoshim Emor, the next three parshas that after people die, then they say Kedoshim to you. We don't say it in people's lifetime. We don't pay them the proper tribute. So, And he was really a martyr, a hero, who rescued Jewish children during World War II, worked with them in Morocco and other places, and brought and, and created the movement. And he recognized the need and really inspired people. And I said that I think a Kaddish Baruch Hu say there will have a special place for, for Yaakov Birnbaum, uh, who will get a seat and remind the Gaddish Baruch about the, all the years that we kept an empty seat for Soviet Jews who couldn't celebrate and who couldn't mark a Seder uh, in their, on their own, and that uh, he will be able to say, Chasal Sidur Pesach, that he, Kihel Chaso, that he lived his life in, in a modest, austere fashion. Uh, he did not want any worldly goods. It was not a thing he cared only about achieving these objectives. And I think uh, so on Pesach, those of who remember the Soviet Jewry movement uh, should recall him, think about him, tell the children about him, tell them about the movement to remind them. And 
that, that we not take things for granted. You know, those who look at the story of Pesach and say, you know, it was because of a famine we went down to Mitzrayim, if they don't see the pattern of history and God's hand in all of it, then they're missing the whole message of, of Pesach and of the miracle and of, the, of how young people should then learn the lessons and confront them today. You know, <clears throat> and all of us who are inspired by all those activities, uh, you know, wear it with great pride. I remember when Yosef Mendelevich was here, I said to him, I, I said to him proudly, do you know how cold I was across in the Soviet mission on Hanukkah, how my hands were freezing and I was practically getting frostbite, you know, recalling with pride that as a kid I was able to participate in all of this. And by the way, you mentioned Pesach and, and, and the irony or, or the coincidence of Jacob Birnbaum passing away this week as the holiday approaches. How many Soviet Jews identified with their tradition and heritage only because of this holiday? I spoke about the hundreds of thousands, maybe even more, because we're already into the third generation of, of Jews who were able to leave the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, people who may be the future Soviet Union again, given the events, uh, and are at a Seder, are leading a Seder, their children or grandchildren are, are at Sedarim, because of the Soviet Jewry movement and his efforts and the efforts of many people who devoted their lives to it, who, who lived and breathed. And by the way, not just the theme of freedom. The matzah was dear to people. They were able to get it at that time, and you were there I before. In matzahs, and I went to Russia. We, we all brought in things, uh, sudurim, that were so prized, let alone a machzer, let alone other things that young people today all take for granted. And say how cold you were across uh, from the Soviet mission, his answer should have been how cold he was <laughs> in Siberia. Malcolm, when you're in the lap of luxury in the U.S. and you're a 13-year-old, you know, close to frostbitten hands makes an impression on you, okay? <laughs> you're you're right that, that he did have it much rougher, that's for sure. Uh, the other thing was that... Um, I guess if we're going to point to the, what, mid-60s for the beginning of all this, right, 64, 65? Exactly. So the culmination of the climax, I guess you'd have to put at the big rally at the end of 1987, right? That it's Right, if you if you take the, the history. activities reached an apex at that point. Right. And, uh, yes. And I, again, in the innocence of youth, looking back, I remember, and I was already on the air at that time, I remember saying that I felt it was a mistake to abolish Solidarity Sunday because there were so many other countries, and we see it today, as you know, there are so many other countries where Jews have difficulty either living or conditions where they live under the tyrannical regimes are so difficult that I think we need an annual gathering like that. And wouldn't you agree, as we look at con- countries like Iran and others, where we know that either Jews can't get out or find it difficult to do so, or whatever the circumstances are, uh, that, that it would be nice to have a movement that stood up and spoke out for Jews like that around the world. As the person who initiated Solidarity Sunday, I certainly agree that it was of unique importance and significance and became an event beyond just the cause. It became a time when Jews could march with pride right. and proclaim their Judaism and do it in a dignified but demonstrative way, and it inspired the efforts later that we did for Syrian Jews, Ethiopian Jews, Iranian Jews. Part of the problem is that we have succeeded, and we don't, you know, we, we uh, rescued the Jews from Yemen, from all the places where they were endangered, and that this generation doesn't grow up with it, nor do they respond to the call 
to, to act when we would have instant demonstrations because of something that happened in the former Soviet Union, and people would be summoned to come to Isaiah Wall, come to the UN, come to other places, local communities doing events, people in their own homes doing things to, to promulgate it, let alone in the schools and in schools, and having signs outside thousands of synagogues, you know, free Soviet Jews. Uh, today, when we called people to come, when Ahmadinejad came, I mean, the, this guy who embodies all of the terrible things in Iran that is uh, the Mitzrayim of today, uh, and worse in some respects, um, that that people don't heed it. They don't have the same motivation and the same, uh, I don't know, that, that maybe it's because of the different era, because of media, because of so many things that it's fallen out of fashion and since we did the big rally in Washington. So I agree that, that you need to think to some event where Jews can come together across all borders, across all boundaries. I and mean, it's the lesson from the Horban that the that this ability to reach out and, and to, to stop all the divisions between us, or at least one day a year, and come together. And, and uh, that's what's happening at many Sadarim. People don't know, but how many Sadarim do you have? Orthodox and non-Orthodox, observant, non-observant, all sorts of people coming together because of the common bonds that really exist between all of us. Yeah, no question about it. And there's a natural segue here, which I'll get to in a second, but it seems, especially before holiday time, that sometimes I ignore some of the events of the week and either reminisce or analyze different things with you. To that end, you mentioned the future Soviet Union, and I know obviously there's some tongue-in-cheek uh, when you say that, but it, but you are recommending, and you do this on a regular basis on this show, you are recommending that Jews, for instance, who live in Iran should uh, seriously consider getting out ASAP. Is that a message, even to a small degree, that you might give to Jews who are now in the former states of the Soviet Union? I think that uh, for, for many of them, uh, the choice is becoming more and more stark. We see the number of people in in individual cities, 25, 30 people a day applying for Aliyah, uh, that, the, that many of them are reading the handwriting on the wall. We do not know at this point what the future will be, whether for the 15,000, 17,000 Jews in Crimea, for instance, or the Jews in eastern Ukraine or Jews in other places. Uh, we see the, the tension around Kharkov, which has a significant Jewish community. And there is an option, and there is the opportunity that people have today that they didn't have, you know, 70 years ago, to go to Israel. Israel is welcoming them. Israel has people in these countries to, to sign them up. Some will come to America. Some have family in America. But I think anybody who, who would advise people to just to sit and stay, I think, is taking a big risk. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world on the web, jmnam.org. And we remember Jacob Yaakov Birnbaum passed away at the age of 87 and, as uh, Malcolm described, certainly somebody to be looked upon as a, a modern Jewish hero. By the way, a moment ago, and here's the natural segue that people were probably waiting for, you mentioned that we need an event for Jews to come together. Uh, you know when that event is in New York, and that's, of course, June 1st up Fifth Avenue to celebrate Israel Parade. Now, full disclosure, of course, everyone knows the parade people have been really nice to us here, and we have an incredible relationship with them, and I'm sure people think that, that, that therefore, it's one of the reasons that my uh, opinion is the way it is. But all that notwithstanding, 
I understand all the sensitivities with the BDS, and I understand all the feelings of certain rabbis, rabbinic leaders, and other leaders uh, on the right who are really upset about certain people participating. But, Malcolm, I still believe, and I think we said this last year, I don't remember if you agreed or not, but you'll tell me if you did, I still believe that even if certain people are invited who may not be exactly the uh, of the opinion that we are, if someone wants to come and celebrate Israel, we should certainly not be the ones to tell them not to. And on top of that, it shouldn't affect our participation in an event like that. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, while we can't just say that everybody is welcome to everything, no matter what views you profess, it's, but this is an occasion to demonstrate unity and to to show uh, solidarity with Israel. And uh, there's nobody who's going to be manifesting the, the I think, objectionable views that, that people have raised and um, look, it's it's uh, you know it's a very tense time now. We see the, the tensions on campuses, and too often it's between Jew and Jew uh, over some of these issues. And I think misguided people who who are young people who don't know the history, don't know the reality, who join uh, BDS or protests or you know the delegitimization campaign. I heard about it this week on a New York City campus, uh, a very intense debate of uh, within the campus about. Uh, bringing uh, people who, who take anti-Israel as you. It doesn't mean people who are critical of Israel's government from the left or from the right. It means those who take the kind of positions on uh, boycotting Israel or things like that, that, that uh, would be objectionable. But the parade, it should be a time, and, and uh, maybe causing so much uh, focus on it only encourages or, or yeah. will bring more people. May- by the way, I, I might just say that... Uh, uh, my long-term associate, Carolyn Green, lost her mother this week. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. We had, uh, and the Levi was this week, so I want to be Menachem Alvon to let everybody know she'll be sitting Shiva this weekend in New York. Uh, we want to get also one of the unsung great people. Oh, no question about it. Sorry to hear that. And uh, Carolyn and her family should certainly uh, uh, be comforted this time. And we should share only good occasions together, as we've had the privilege to do uh, in the past. Um and 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 on top of that, just getting back for a moment to the to the parade the thing, on top of that, maybe uh, rabbinic leaders should be out there saying, you know what, let's bring so many tens of thousands of people to Fifth Avenue that day that will completely drown out any possibility of groups that might be questionable who are attending. Maybe that should be the attitude. And they should have positive signs and signs that that help educate, because you think of all the people who see this, and of course the picture will be if. if anything untoward happens, yeah. will be that, and all the rest of the positive message will be lost. Ron Pundak, architect of the 1993 Oslo Accords, died Friday at the age of 59 after a lengthy battle with an illness. I assume he's somebody you knew pretty well. No, I did not know him uh, very well, but I, I did meet him many times. Uh, he was uh, very involved in the... Uh, and he was considered the guy behind the 1993 Oslo Accords. And he died, I think, at 59. So any Oslo fans, we have him to thank. Uh, him and, well, he didn't. He couldn't do it alone. He, he was one of the people who was involved in, in uh, opening the secret channels of communication between Israel then and the PLO. And, uh, you know, he was chairman of the Israeli Peace Now uh, NGO. So you didn't know, like twenty years later, if he if he felt his efforts were worthwhile or not. That's a that's you know we w- we wouldn't know who had a conversation like that with him. No, I do not. Um, 
the I always thought, and I don't know why I always thought that I always thought that Uri Savir was given credit as the one who opened up the channel secretly to Oslo. Was that was he also involved or? He was involved. I don't think he was uh, an architect. He was, you know, obviously very close and, and worked closely with uh, Shimon Peres. And when he was at the foreign ministry, he was then consul general in New York. But he, he was involved and a supporter of it. But I think uh, Pundak was seen as, uh, as uh, the guy who breached the and, and established the bridge between the two sides. And uh, since we're focusing on some of the people who've uh, who've passed away in this conversation, did you know Robert Slater, Time Magazine? I knew him very well. I went to school with him, in fact. Meaning? At Temple University. I went to, uh, to school. He was a student there at the same time I was. So how would you evaluate his uh, his evaluation of Israel? He was a great friend and a great supporter of Israel. Really? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Yeah, interesting. Um, he had a job, but he, I mean, I can tell you many times when he would call me to, to ask me for information to give the, the contrary view to, to uh, what was being uh, given to him. It, uh, unbelievable. I mean, you're speaking to somebody, you know, who, who was encouraged as a kid not to read Time Magazine because of their attitude. Well, he wasn't at Time Magazine the whole time. Uh. He, he, he did work for other uh, publications. And uh, I can tell you that uh, as an individual, he, uh, he, he, he made Aliyah. He lived in Israel. I think he wrote two dozen books. And um, he, he uh, you know, he wrote for, for the Jerusalem Report and for other publications. So he was, uh, again, can't just judge him by what the rest of the magazine uh, Yeah, understood. Did. <clears throat> he was there for about 20 years. Um, all right. Uh, do you know why, do, do you know whom Secretary of State John Kerry blames the breakdown of the Israel PA talks? You know, on whom he's blaming it? Well, I think some of them, judging by the reports, it would, judge, it would depend on which hour. <laughs> uh, but they all seem to be aimed at Israel. He has said that he was not blaming Israel. He did, I think, make a very unfortunate quote. Uh, comment when uh, in this testimony before the Senate, which was uh, roundly challenged by members of the Senate, when he, when he said that Israel announced the 700 units, it wasn't clear to I think to people that this is in Gilo, a city of 40,000 people, a community of 40,000 people in the city of Jerusalem, um, and the uh, and holding up the prisoner release. The prisoner release was something contingent on Palestinians delivering and, and being at the table. When they walk away from the table, Israel had no obligation or responsibility to continue another release when, after the first three, produced nothing except the Palestinians taking and making more demands. Mm-hmm. Then the Palestinians announcing and signing 15 accords or, or applications to join 15 conventions and therefore agencies today, the Swiss government announced, the Swiss foreign ministry, that they had accepted the letter that was sent and the application for the PA, though they called the Palestinian state, to be a, a signatory to the Geneva Convention, which opens up all sorts of prospects. But I think somebody better tell Abbas that it can work both ways, that you can become the subject of a lot of challenges as much as uh, you can make them uh, for, for you know, bringing war crimes charges and, and the like. Uh, so uh, Secretary Kerry has gone to lengths to say that he was not blaming Israel, that he was putting responsibility on both. 
but I think the way the media certainly interpreted it and read what he did was was putting the onus, and then there were reports of information that had been leaked uh, in advance. So, um, as always, you know, the Palestinians walk away scot-free. They can violate everything. They can not live up to any commitment, and the onus is always shifted to Israel. And it goes back to the earlier threats about, you know, boycott. These things are the reasons why Abbas doesn't come to the table, in part. One, that he doesn't want to negotiate a deal with me. He thinks, look, all the pressure is not going to be on me. They're not going to do anything to me. They don't cut the funds. They don't do what we should do when they uh, move in violation of the agreement. Yeah, and, but, and the agencies are in violation by accepting a non-state. But there's a more confusing part of this. And it, it, it's sort of like, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to concede that the U.S. has to take this approach. And I certainly am ready to concede that the PA in its head has no reason not to take the approach they're using. But it's Israel in the news this week that's so hard to understand. It seems that every day we uh, we check the web, we open the papers, and one day Israel is expressing why it's important to get back to the table with the PA and they need to do so as soon as possible. And on the other hand, you read that they're distancing themselves from the PA and don't want anyone to have the impression that they're anxious to get back to the table. Which one is it? No, first of all, Israel doesn't want to take the blame in the international community and give an excuse to, to all of those who are just chomping at the bit to continue the BDS-type actions, to, to, to bring sanctions against Israel. And at the same time, Israel needs to show that the, to the Palestinians that this is not a one-side street, that Israel, which you know, transfers $100 million a month in, in tax money that they collect, they now say, okay, we're going to hold it and we're going to decide now, because there's a big debt owed to Israel from the Palestinian Authority. They don't pay for a lot of the uh, resources, uh, utilities at times, other things. So uh, there's pressure from inside Israel to, to take steps as well. And Netanyahu has reduced the contact with the PA because, you know, you sit there, you make an offer of prisoners. He offered even now more prisoners to get him back to the table. And Israel was forthcoming and yet gets slapped around and the, the PA uh, does even more at the same time that they say no to, to the talks, no to meeting even with Kerry at the time, no uh, um, uh, the absolute exercise of the right to return, no, never recognizing the Jewish state. I mean, they did all the no's. Right. And Israel's saying, what, what is this? I mean, it has to be some price. I don't even know if you know the answer to this question, but what's the current deal at right now? How many prisoners, Bargudi, Pollard, like what, what's in and what's not in right now? Yes. <laughs> we have no idea, right? We have no idea, and I, I, I don't know. What do you think the number is around? Do you have any idea what the number's around now? Because it was in the 20s, I think, the last time there was a report. No, that was the fourth tranche of the, the, uh, of the previous deal. There were reports that they were talking about releasing up to 400 prisoners um, going back to the table, and obviously the Palestinians want Barghouti, which I think most Israelis would find uh, abhorrent, if certainly objectionable. Right. Um, so it will be in the hundreds if there's a, a negotiation right now. They'll be negotiating in the hundreds. It will be in the hundreds. Uh, I think that that will cause a lot of internal problems for uh, Netanyahu. In, in his I mean, will Bennett really leave if a deal like that goes through? Will he will he uh, break the coalition? Drawing the line so strong in the stand, I think it might be harder for him to to back off of it. Uh, the uh, you know that with the new sanctions that the Israel has taken um, with the the uh, diminution of contacts, although the security coordination, I understand, is continuing uh, as before. Um, you know, this is a dance, and we have to see what, what the next step, who, who will move, and what the United States will do. They brought back the envoy. He's here for consultations, and I guess for Yontif. 
and then uh, uh, I believe that ultimately they'll go back to the table. What did you think in general of Kerry's presentation on Capitol Hill? Because he had, not just with Israel, talking about Russia, Ukraine, Iran. I mean, he, he was he was hit with a lot of uh, tough shots this week. Yes, he was, and it's a tough time for the United States. Uh, you know, we have many challenges. I think the Russian challenge is, is still in the early stages. I think we're going to see much more. The satellite pictures show Russian troops, even planes, uh, being moved. Uh, you know, and and Russia feels that they can move with impunity, including this trade deal with uh, with Iran that will open the floodgates, a $20 billion deal that bypasses the sanctions because it doesn't involve banks. We'll have to see if they go through, but the, it's not so much that the oil that Iran, Iran sells to Russia, but it's what Russia is giving in return, which may include missiles, it could include the S-300, uh, and they could use that as uh, ways to, quote, punish the United States and the West for what they're doing uh, vis-a-vis the Ukraine. And this is all escalating at this time, and I think people don't really understand how serious uh, this moment is in, in many respects, that the um, that the, and the worst thing is goes back to what I just said that there's never a price that Iran can send a shipload right. of missiles to terrorists in violation of all the sanctions. Thank God Israel intercepted it, the Class C. But there's not a price that you can challenge the United States, the West. You can take these kind of aggressive actions. And in fact, aside from uh, some sanctions, which may hurt, may affect them, but is not decisive. That people that rogue states feel like China could even do it, or certainly Korea, that it's the time to exercise your options because everybody's preoccupied and there's not going to be a price. You mentioned last week about the um, this 1979 hostage taker who was proposed as ambassador, was it? Yes. From Iran, so the House went ahead and rejected his ability to come to the U.S.? Is that what happened? The Senate. The Senate. It was the Senate? Now, does that have teeth? Does it matter? Like, is that symbolic? How... What well, is they it? can't. It's, it's really administration, but the administration has said very clearly that this is objectionable. It's not acceptable to have a guy who, who now claims he wasn't one of the hostage takers. He only later was their negotiator and their translator. Since when do you remember that was kind of defenses from people who participate <laughs> in horrific crimes and then say, "Well, I was just you know associated there." I yeah, negotiator. I don't, I don't even remember a negotiation. <laughs> <laughs> well, they did. So he, the words that ultimately released him, but yeah. he was clearly involved. And but but to me, the important part is that the Iranian thinking saying we know that there's going to be a reaction to the appointment. I mean, they got tens of millions of people. They couldn't have found somebody else to be the the yeah. UN ambassador. But it's a way to stick it to the U.S. It's a it's a challenge to us, and it's I think it's such a deep insult to the families, to the American people. And they're waiting to see how we respond. And they're going to wait to see. And if we cut it off, then they, you know, will say, "Well, it's a violation of headquarters agreement, et cetera, et cetera." I think the United States has to say that the, as the Senate is saying, people who are involved in terrorist activities are not going to be welcome to come to the United States. They're not going to give them visas. I read this morning. Uh, I don't even know where I read it, but I read this morning an article describing the um, that as as fearful as we are about the nuclear uh, potential that Iran has, their conventional military is not nearly as strong as one would suspect. Now, from a you know military political science viewpoint, is that important? If if in fact uh, they 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 will reach nuclear capability, uh, does it matter if their conventional military is strong or not? Sure, it matters. Uh, 
because it's it, their ability to really stand up. The thing is that that Russia is not a great power. It's not a superpower today anymore. It may be relative to some, but but to, to some states, but it is not a great power. Its economy is is very weak, and the uh, its military is not that big and not that strong that it couldn't be challenged by effective coalition of American and Europeans and others to to defend the countries of Europe. Each time another sec- segment of a country or a, or, or, or a country will fall to, to this new thrust. And you see the, the president, Aliyev of, of Azerbaijan, went to Iran, I believe, even though they have terrible relations, because he's afraid of the Russian uh, moves uh, going to come there, or Kazakhstan, uh, or Georgia, let alone Moldova, let alone the, the Baltics and other areas where we see this aggressiveness. And it's only when they see the determination to stop them. And, and all of this is also read, as I said, by the Iranians, by others who uh, will take advantage of this. And, just, and, and it's open season, and unless we really put our foot down in the, those, nobody would want to see a war, same person wants to see a war between the United States and, and Russia. I don't think that that is necessarily the option to to this uh, situation because I don't think Russia is prepared to go to war. They can cut off the uh, gas supplies or energy supplies, and we have to work to create alternatives now, regardless of this, so that we're not they're not dependent on uh, Russian supplies in the future. Uh, but you know, I'd say just threatening sanctions if this Iran deal goes through, if other things happen, and in the meantime, we had the Iran negotiations. The Russians say. The delegate there says, oh, we're not looking for results now. We're looking to set the parameters for the next round of talks. So the next round is now set at May 13th, which is exactly what we said at the beginning, that what the Iranians will do with the backing Russians is to gain time, buy time, more time, more time, more time. In the meantime, in 2014, by the end of this year, the IMF says they'll be out of the recession. We see that the amount of oil they're selling is, is reaching greater and greater numbers. The head of their Iran Atomic Energy Agency the one that was Abbasi, said that he lied, that they lied all the time. Right. I mean, he says it publicly. And then there is no, uh, uh, there's even about Iraq, about the production facilities, about the facilities they didn't tell the International Atomic Energy Agency about. And you have to believe them. These guys are telling the truth, and they're challenging the West all the time. The one good news countering it is that Israel launched another satellite, the seventh satellite, a very effect 10, that just went up, and we'll keep an eye, I think, on what the Iranians are doing. Well, let's hope. Um, before we go to your final message before Passover 5774, on the subject of freedom, I see you in the conference uh, released a statement this week in support of uh, Cuban prisoner Alan Gross. We did, and it's a, it's a very important message, and we think every time on Passover, those who are in prison, Pollard, Bashkin, Mr. Gross, others who, who um, Warren Levinson, who's uh, too often forgotten that uh, we want to see everybody being able to be home at the Sudarim, um, that the uh, that this case of a guy who was working for the USAID uh, and was there to build communications connections with the Jewish community in Cuba has now sat for more than four years, and he began a hunger strike, um, which... Uh, uh, he's, he's already lost 10 pounds, but he had lost 110 pounds before. It is, he's not in good uh, physical condition. And I think that, that uh, people should remember uh, them and all the others 
who are imprisoned or are suffering, who are um, being discriminated against in this era and face dangers, um, that uh, we don't take freedom for granted. And, and it's the message for Pesach that you don't never take freedom for granted and, and that thinking that these things are automatic and we take our own conditions and our own situation, the fact that we have the ability, but when we see anti-Semitism rising again, the whole Seder warns us about how to deal with it and teaches us. Rami obeyed Avi, the whole uh, lessons about all those who challenged us and, and Mitzrayim being the epitome of it and the example of it, but the replication throughout time, you know, the BDS movement is not new. We see the Mitzrayim where, where uh, Barrow says, we've got to deal shrewdly, not because they did anything wrong. He said they're growing strong, they're in power, but not, they didn't do anything but contribute to the country. And it says by Oreo that they, did, that they wronged the Jews, and people say, why that formulation? And the answer is because that's the right formulation, that before they could impose slavery, they had to wrong the Jews. Hitler had to wrong the Jews before he could carry out uh, what ultimately became the final solution. Because you had to show the Jews are responsible for the ills that befell society. They're making them the scapegoat. And then people are ready to accept it. The BDS movement is doing the same thing. And that's why people are so sensitive to why it's so objectionable when you see young Jews and little and or non-Jews uh, on campuses or businesses or others falling victim to it. It's not harmless. It's not insignificant. It is the root of what we have experienced through the day, that this is an attempt to delegitimize us, to isolate us, to say that we don't have the standing of others, that we have, that you can be subject to all of this mistreatment, unjustified as it is. And today it's directed at the collective Jew, the state of Israel. Mm, no question about it. Important message as we sit down to the Seder on Monday night. And yet another one that, uh, that you and I have emphasized over the last couple of weeks, and that is that uh, if you're able to gather with family and friends, and especially if it's multi-generational, this coming Monday night, don't take it for granted. Most Jews in Jewish history did not have that opportunity. That's true, and there's still a lot of Jews today who don't have it. All right. Or Malcolm, people. I take this opportunity to wish you a Chag Kasher V'Sameach, and we will reconvene, uh, please God, in two weeks from now. I'm willing and should have happy matzahs, a great Seder, and to everyone. We hope that this will be the last one in Golis. Oh, I'm main to that. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Two weeks from today, we'll pick up with the weekly update Friday morning at 7.40 Eastern Time right here at JM in the A.